Welcome to this week's podcast. Reckless Eric is our guest this week. He's been on the show a few times before, once with his wife Amy Rigby when they had one of their albums, which they collaborated on. Uh, They played live in Studio A, and then at least once, just a regular interview. You can check the archives of all of those at wfmu.org slash michael. You may have noticed that as I have a guest on more than once, the the successive successive interviews tend to be less linear and less of just a straight-up biography. Uh, and that is the case with this one. We mostly talk about his new record and how he's been in recent times, what the, the recent news is. And because he is kind of one of these ever-evolving uh, people, it's uh, I think it worked out well this time. He's not your usual interview. He's kind of a give him a little crumb and then get out of the way type of interview, and I think it worked out pretty well. Uh, His website is RecklessEric.com. He's got a couple shows in New York, New Jersey in September, and then he's off to Europe for 10 weeks, uh, mostly UK and Germany. So if you're over there, check RecklessEric.com for information and uh, dates and and stuff like that. I do want to point out, and this is very important, that uh, this podcast has lots and lots of curses in it. Eric uh, used some salty language, so if you prefer a bleeped version of this interview, go to wfmu.org slash Michael, check out the archive of the radio show for uh, for the version that went out on the air, and of course that is beeped. So don't listen to this if you don't want to hear a bunch of cursing, which I find... I don't mind it, but some people do. Uh, Here it is, me and Reckless Eric. Okay, there is uh, the closing track of the new Reckless Eric album called Drag Time. It's called uh, Leisureland, the album is. And Eric joins us on the phone. Good morning. How are you? I'm fine. Yes, I'm well. I love that you call it leisure land. Well, you call it leisure land. Leisure land. Yeah, we'd never call it leisure land. That'd be ridiculous. Well, this is America. (laughs) Uh. I know. I've had to learn all these kind of things. Like, you know, I made the mistake of calling the backyard the garden. Hmm. No, that's the place you you grow vegetables. Yeah. Yes, I was taken taken down for that slightly, you know. <laughs> who do you think you are? You know, pretentious. Yeah. And the, yeah. there are words that I have to avoid, you know. Tomato. To, you say tomato, uh, but we so t- say tomato. And and it's got to the point where I find it a, the, the word completely ridiculous in any language or <laughs> either language, American or English. You know, I find myself having to use the Americanism, which I would never use in real life. These guys, I've noticed anything can be these guys. <laughs> it can be girls can be guys, women can be guys, guys, boys can be guys, men can be guys. Um, a collection of shoes can be these guys. <laughs> or some some cakes in a display case could be... These guys, those guys. You're right. It's hard. It's it's life is throws you a lot of curveballs. Listen, uh, I think that in the U.S., people feel a very 
And because we're so huge here, we feel a regional attachment to where we grew up. You grew up in New Haven in Southeast England, you know, and I think each region, yes. of, uh, each region of England has its own sort of identity. What is that identity, and is that still implanted in you? Um, it's hard to tell. I mean, you can take the boy out of New Haven, but you can never take New Haven out of the boy. I mean... You know, my parents came from the north. They were working class Manchester, um, whatever, you know, and they they, they moved to the south after the war and they kind of tried to better themselves one way or another. You know, they moved up from being working class, the lowest of the low, to my dad having a, a white collar job, you know, becoming a draftsman. He wore a suit to go to work, and this was really quite an achievement. But I was born in New Haven, and my mum said, I wish you wouldn't talk like a New Haven boy. And I go, well, I can't help it, that's what I am. Um, <laughs> I, I, I was always a New Haven boy, what could I do, you know? And New Haven was like a fishing port, you know. It had the it had a fishing fleet. It had the Parker Pen Company, and it had a cross channel ferry that went to France. And uh, we moved out of New Haven and we moved to Peacehaven, which was up the road, and it was all bungalows and a lot of old people and kids that went to a different school to me, which was a bit of a drag. I mean, uh, it was a funny place, you know. It was like uh, the police used to go to the youth centre every Friday night and arrest some person for some wrongdoing, you know. It was a difficult place, really. I read that you had gone to art school. What is art school like in the early 70s? And are they preparing you for a career doing fine arts? Was that... In your head? What is a career? You know, you, 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 unless you, I don't know, they're a career artist now. It's a different world. But I mean, like, you know, all art school prepared you for was a lifetime of poverty. <laughs> you know, in those ways. I mean, like, it didn't, you know, you weren't going to, okay, right, you come out of art school and off you go, you get a job like being an artist. It didn't exist. I mean, like, I did, especially like, I didn't do graphic arts. I did fine arts, you know. I was doing painting and sculpture and all that kind of shenanigans. Yeah, was the plan, though, for you to be a painter or something like that? Was that your idea? Well, I was an artist. I mean, I think I was born to it. I was like, it became obvious from an early age. I mean, like, uh,. I wish I'd learned more practical stuff. I mean, it's amazing to me that I I spent four years in British art schools and came out of it with no idea how to fill in an income tax form and no idea how to balance the books or how to be a self-employed person. I still kind of haven't, really. I don't think I'm hopeless, but... um, 
I find all that stuff difficult. I find it difficult to be a businessman, you know. And that's what you have to be if you're going to be a freelance artist. And I make no distinction between making music, painting or writing, you know, or drawing or whatever, these kind of things. I I don't... Think of I think of them really as the same kind of thing. It's just a different medium. Like some people talk about watercolours and oils, and I might talk about sound and visual. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. There's a lot of, I'm trying to think of the right word, almost legend surrounding the history of Stiff Records, the idea that there was something special going on or a special energy or something new going on there. You know, at the end of the day, do you remember that feeling happening despite whatever happened in the end? I think that history is bunk, as they say. I don't know what bunk is, actually, but I love the expression. (laughs) Um, uh, At the beginning, it was incredible because there had never been like an independent record label in that way. There'd been Ireland Records. But it wasn't kind of like Stiff Records was like one man. It was Jay Riviera and he had this old car and he used to drive around the record shops with the latest release in it and sell them some copies. There was definitely something, but, you know, punk has become like, you know, like punk, new wave, everything. They, 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 They created a formula And I can't really see it. It's like if you're inside a building, you can't see the outside of the building. It's you've got no perspective. Yeah, the eye of the hurricane. Uh, Yes, I'm probably the yeah, I can't tell you what the hurricane was like, really. There maybe was a hurricane. I don't know. But And then there are always people who come in and they want to write themselves into this history. But sometimes they almost create a history that they can write themselves into. Mm. You know, I mean, there was the famous concert that The Clash played at. The the vibrators supplied the PA and Shane McGowan got his ear bitten off. Something like that, or torn with a broken bottle. And that was at the 100 Club. Now, the number of people that claimed to have been at that wouldn't fit in the 100 Club. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's difficult to sort it out. And, like, really, we thought that this punk thing was, which I didn't, I don't, never liked it being. Punk. I thought Nick Lowe was always great with that. He said, I don't want to be a punk, I want to have class. And I'm thinking, yeah, so do I. You know, in some weird way, it was not about that. And I, I, I feel that punk suddenly became this thing and was, uh, was defined, um, and it was defined by the gutter press, really. It was defined by the Daily Mirror. It was defined by the Sex Pistols on Bill Grundy. And to be honest, you know, the Sex Pistols, I mean, come on. It was it was okay. They made one album. They were very lardy in their way. I mean, John Lydon, or Johnny Rotten as he was, was interesting. But the whole thing was kind of mired in something. I don't know. The Clash, I don't think they wanted to be... Uh, 
a punk band. I mean, they want to be a fucking great rock and roll band, you know? And they were, eventually. It's hard to say what it all was. And I never thought that it got it got defined as as spotty blokes with leather jackets with chains on the back and and cockatoo kind of haircut hairdo things, you know, and yeah. and that was it and welcome to the King's Road and like I never saw that I never saw that in real life. I only ever saw it on a postcard. But where does that where does that relate to the Ramones or television? I mean, television sound much more, and I don't mean this to decry them, I love them, but they sound much more like a prog rock band, really. But prog rock is something that was outlawed. There was, it was really a weird time. Yeah. And do you know what was big at the time? that we couldn't see because we were so absorbed in our own thing. But the real big thing, I mean, the, the working class kind of thing was like get out of, like, to pull yourself out of the pit, get disco. Disco was the real big thing. And some people, I think, realised that. Uh, you know, um, the Gang of Four, maybe, or Talking Heads. In some way, they they realised this, where some of us couldn't really see it at the time. But while we were having our revolution, that was the real revolution was going on with disco music and clubs, you know. Yeah, disco's aged very well, I'd say. So there's a. I saw a recent interview with you in the Guardian, which was kind of everywhere somehow. This I was just being this. Oh, this no. it was being shoved in front of me, and the headline was "I was an absolute maniac," which I thought was a a very eye catching <laughs> headline. Uh, what yes, did that? What did I that mean? That. <laughs> did that mean you were partying um, too much? Did it mean you were just reacting bad to being I famous? I always wonder what this this thing this thing called partying. You know, is well, it's a polite way of saying doing drugs and alcohol <laughs> for interviewers. Oh, sure, but I never thought it was like a party. I mean, that that would be. That sounds too wholesome, really, for what was going on. I mean, look, you know, I I was always quite kind of weirdly hedonistic, but I came from a small town. I mean, like, you know, my my early experiences were like, you know, trying to have a psychedelic experience on on light ale or something, or. <laughs> you know. Um, and going, right, what happens if you... Apparently, these have got something in them that gets you high, you know, some over-the-counter medicine or something, you know, and drinking a bottle of Night Nurse. Don't do that at home or, or out. But, yeah, there, there was a lot of stuff went on. I mean, I'm amazed by how tame people are, This these, you know, now, in a way, most people... Some people like their their behaviour does kind of horrify me, which I almost find kind of refreshing in a way. A maniac. Yes, I I had a, a kind of you know do or die kind of thing. I used to get in a lot of fights. Uh, I it was I had a big drink problem, um, 
I mean, not kind of like matey kind of carousing kind of drinking. I mean, I would drink a bottle of cognac in our hotel room alone after a gig. I found I was challenged. I, I, I actually thought people came to see me play because they wanted to fuck me up. To see me fall over in some kind of way, you know, to see me fail. Mm. That's a very British thing. You think everyone wants you to fail. When I first came to America to live, I thought that people were... I thought they were being sarcastic. You say, they say, what are you, what are you doing? And you say, well, I'm, I'm just making a new record. And they go, oh, that's amazing. <laughs> and I think, oh, okay, yeah, well, you know, fuck you. Um, uh, you know, um, and, and then realised that they actually meant it. They were good for you, you know, and I, I love that. America made me a much more positive person. That's fascinating. Uh, one of the things I took from the article, and maybe I've got this wrong because I'm a little bit reading between the lines, but there was this guy, Reckless Eric, who uh, who got stuck on you, sort of like you and whoever gave you that name created a monster, and for a while you tried yeah. to run away from it, and eventually you sort of embraced that guy and you're sort of comfortable yeah in in a way i i didn't embrace it i didn't want to be the person that people expected me to be i've i've i learned a long time ago that you have to invent yourself and present yourself and that's who you are but what you're called is like i mean you know my name is eric goulden and in those days, I mean, you, you, these days you could have a name like David Snodgrass and be a huge, huge artist. But those days you had to have some sort of, you know, we were we were just coming out of the era of people that were called Marty Wilde and Billy Fury, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I always wondered about Tommy Quickly. <laughs> no, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this kind of sexual, kind of powerful Tommy Steele. <laughs> you know, you had to have names like this. You could you couldn't be you couldn't be Roy Prendergast. I mean now uh, now the latest one from Roy Prendergast, I think it's gonna be his biggest ever. But you couldn't be called something like that, so I couldn't be Eric Goulden. I mean I probably could now. Also in the article I s the same thing, you sort of made your peace with the song Whole Wide World. And I was thinking, we don't really need to talk about that. But then I thought, as I was reading this uh, this thing in The Guardian, that would it's almost a, like not talking to Paul McCartney about the Beatles. I mean, you, you could do it, but, uh, it, you know, it was used in a Super Bowl commercial last year. I assume, <laughs> I assume that's a life-changing, in some ways, event. Well, um, I don't know, really. I, I don't think, you know, I mean, a lot of people didn't notice. It, it, it's like wallpaper, really. People never notice the wallpaper. But if your refrigerator breaks, you can fix it that year. That's true. I could do things like that. And it enabled me to stay at home and record and not have to worry quite so much about money. Uh, COVID, I know, was not a fun experience for you. Uh, a heart attack is is really how it ended up for you. I mean, that is, is yeah, yeah. It was um, actually that that you know, in a way, 
it was kind of fun because it was it was the first time anything had happened for weeks and weeks. It was so bloody boring, you know. So heart attack was fun. Well, in a way, I'm going, God, what's that? You know, I mean, I must have been high as a kite because they gave me stuff and, like, you know, they're plugging all this stuff in and everything. And, like, I'm always interested in this kind of thing. When people are doing stuff, you know, and they're wheeling out a machine with dials and gauges and flashing lights on it and attaching electrodes to me. I'm going, wow, what does that do, you know? It's all a bit like that. It didn't feel like an elephant on your chest? (laughs) No, no. It it was nothing like, I mean, like Amy said, I think you might be having a heart attack. I'm going, no, that's completely different because everyone knows that a heart attack is like you've got this, you've got this fist gripping your heart inside your chest and your left arm goes numb. Yeah. Everyone knows that. But I didn't have that. So it couldn't be heart attack. But, I mean, like, the closest I can explain it as is my arms and legs were, were sort of developed an independent existence. And I think my head may at one point have been doing that 360 exorcist thing, you know. <laughs> um, and everything felt incredibly weird. That's not that long ago, and you've got 10 weeks coming up starting very very soon, uh, gigs all over UK and Europe. Uh, how do you prepare for that? Are you, you Or I get the feeling you are well, just all the um, time ready to go, go, go. I sort of like, um, like you know, quietly curl up into a ball and go, oh, God, <laughs> what am I going to do? <laughs> you know, like that, sort of a bit like that metaphorically um possibly for real uh, and and uh kind of think right okay uh yes i need to plan all this i need to i should get a set and then think somewhere in my head i think oh it'll be all right it'll take care of itself and and uh if you don't take care of it it will take care of itself but it might be a disaster but i mean oh i don't know I should be planning something here, shouldn't I? You know, I am. In this Guardian article again, you say that you once strangers say, what do you do? You usually say, oh, I'm a retired geography teacher. Why? You just don't want to open that can of worms? Look, if you're, if you're like, you know, in a bus queue or something, I mean, you're not going to go, oh, <laughs> yeah, I'm a musician, actually. And they'll go, <laughs> oh, right. <clears throat> so, uh, what do you play? Oh, I play the uh, guitar, you know, and and sing, write my own songs. Oh, right. So, um, who do you play with? Um, anyone I may have heard of. And that's the moment you want to, oh dear. You you don't want to go down that road. Because you might say, yeah, actually, I'm Reckless Eric. You know, I wrote that whole wide world. And, uh, you know, and I was on Stiff Records. And, like, I play all over the world. And it's so great, you know. And I've got all these fans. I've got this new album out. And they'll go, who? I've never heard of you. <laughs> Okay. I mean that's going to go well. So you never wanted to you never want to get into that. Or they might say, "Oh, right. What's that uh, Elvis Costello? What's he really like?" <laughs> you know. 
um, or, you, you know, they might want to, you know, uh, uh, I, I actually don't know. I mean, you can only disappoint or they're going to be all over you and they'll be going, you know, telling the other people, hey, you know who this is? And you're thinking, <laughs> oh, God, you know, I'm just going down the road on the bus. I didn't I didn't bark him for all So, no, if anyone asks you what you do, you never go for the... It's tempting. It's like how people are with tax return forms, you know. Well, I can't put that. It's going to make me look like a complete loser. Well, that's exactly what you've got to do. I've always said, you know, with tax return forms, it's bad enough being a loser without having to prove it once a year. But uh, <laughs> that's what you need to do. You need to prove that you're a loser. You don't want to be, hey, I'm a real winner. I earned this and I earned this and I earned this and I'm not claiming anything because, you know, that makes me look good. And look at this figure on the end of, oh, I owe tax. Oh, shit. Um, <laughs> you know, so you've got to be circumspect about this so someone says so what 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 do you do you know what brings well you know when we retired um my wife would always wanted to move back to the the states and i said oh well all right you know and they'll say so what what did you do before you retired and you go well it was a geography teacher it's the end of the conversation <laughs> Right. Gotcha. Uh, speaking of geography, I, I look at the cover of Leisure Land, your new record. And folks can go, by the way, to recklesseric.com. I love that. I love that how you made the effort there, you know, to Thank sort you. of like leisure land. <laughs> well, you're the guest. Yes, I, I want to make you feel land. at home. So uh, recklesseric.com if they want to check it out or order it or listen to it or read your blog or et cetera, et cetera. Uh, let's talk about the opening track from uh, the new leisure land album called Southern Rock. What is this song about? What is, explain it. Right, okay, well, I thought it was pretty explanatory, really. I mean, I was like 15 years old, you know, I didn't know, I didn't, uh, well, you, you don't know much when you're a kid, you don't have any idea, I mean, you have to gather the information as you go along, and like, you know, it's easier for kids now to get information, but then it wasn't. And it was like, you get the idea of all these things that are going on, and I'm thinking... I'm listening to this stuff and I'm wondering where it comes from and I had no idea where anything was. Like, I was in a geography class at school. They, they, when I was about eleven, they said, right. Um, they, the, the, the geography teacher had this map of the world on a big board and he said you had to come out and put a pin. In, in 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 the cities, you know, of the and, and when it got to my turn, you know, someone would get New Delhi or something, and like you know, or uh, Birmingham or somewhere like that, and I I got New York, so I walked up there and I proudly put the pin in the in in America. I got America right. <laughs> um, and obviously New York was like, I mean, you know, we knew about New York. So, I mean, New York was probably the capital, like London. You know, you knew about London. London is the capital. I knew about New York. New York's the capital. Well, London, um, New York is not going to be anywhere 
kind of vague or something. I stuck it right where Kansas is. <laughs> right, smack in the middle. And I thought, this this is, yeah, there was no way that you knew what, how the world was and where it was in those days. Not, you know... So, like, I had no idea what this southern rock thing... I, I, I wonder where California is. I don't know, maybe it was where... Well, you know, I thought it was where Florida is or somewhere. Or uh, Got no concept of the world. It's, it, it's a funny thing. No idea. And, and just no, having a, an inkling that there was something... There was experiences there was information there was a whole cultural thing going on somewhere else but having no idea how to get to it and that's what this song is about i think so color me stone color me dumb color me green color me gone color me high color me low color me out on the edge somewhere i don't know you know it's yeah, um, listening to Southern Rock in South East England in 1971, I thought that fucking, that's a gift that, you know, I found it in a notebook. I had just written it down one day. Let's hear it now. Let's hear uh, Southern Rock. It's the opening track of Leisure Land from uh, Reckless Air. <laughs> RecklessEric.com is the, is the uh, place to go for the info. Ten weeks in UK and Europe. I wish you luck. I mean, that's a lot of work. Yeah, I mean, like I always did do that kind of thing. I like I like record. You know, I I like recording and being at home. But I have this wanderlust and this thing. I I want to go out and play. You know. Yeah. Well, thanks for visiting with us. It's been always super interesting. I hope it's been okay. I, pro- I promise you it <laughs> no. has. Thanks. Thanks. 